0: This is Mission.org. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Technology has been disrupting the journalism industry to its core for decades. As younger generations come of age, The need to keep them informed in ways that reach and speak to them requires moving into new verticals, and maybe even thinking about who your competitors are differently. After all, what is news today? How is it consumed, ingested, and most importantly, where is it coming from? Mayur Gupta, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Gannett, knows this because he's living it, and if there's one thing he's focused on now, it's reaching that younger generation. We want to continue to index
1: younger and younger. That's the growth segment we want to penetrate. So we are evolving and making a lot of investment in evolving our experiences, our content, the verticals. And so we're using a lot of those signals to identify what are the types of content, what formats, what type of experiences should we mark premium? At the same time, what does a premium experience look and feel like? And we know that as a user, you are living in this world where there's no dearth of great content. We don't compare ourselves with other journalism brands. We compare ourselves with the Netflixes, the Apples, the Spotify's of the world because, at the end, it's all content. Their world perhaps begins and indexes more on fiction. If you ask me in one phrase, my vision for the company, my personal, I would say I would love to build a Netflix for nonfiction content, which is the premier source and destination.
0: Building a new brand identity in an established empire like Gannett is no small task. Meyer, listed as one of Forbes world's most influential CMOs explains how he taught marketing to himself while on the road for another job in this episode he shows how he's taken the helm at one of journalism's most respected brands and is driving the company towards reaching younger audiences as a growth strategy he gives some insight into this strategy on unifying large and non monolithic systems that have been in place for years plus he shares some of the big lessons he learned at companies such as Freshly and Spotify. All this up next on Marketing Trends. Brightspot content management system enables marketers to launch in just 100 days. It efficiently manages marketing campaigns on mobile apps or updates investors on your corporate site, handling it all seamlessly. With over a hundred plus different content types and templates, marketers can deliver a customized, relevant experience to your audience. Additionally, integrate your current marketing automations platform and SEO recommendations directly from your Brightspot content management system, simplifying tool management. Discover more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. Today, I'm super honored to have Meyer Gupta, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer for Gannett. Meyer. welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me over. Very excited. I'm super excited to have you, man. It didn't take me very long to to Google your name and find a lot of stuff about your background, man. I saw some a few interesting conversations. You've been on a whole bunch of podcasts. And I just want to brag on you a little bit more for our audience, because, you know, the the things that have happened in your career up until this point uh, at the end of 2021 is pretty awesome. So I just want to mention a few more things about you to kind of set the context. So, so Meyer uh, served on the, he actually served on the board of Gannett uh, for almost a couple of years from October, 2019 to September, 2020. And then he was named Chief Marketing Strategy Officer. Now, prior to joining Gannett, he was the Chief Marketing Officer at Freshly, which is a really fast-growing gro- fast kind of food tech company. And then Mr. Gupta also led digital initiatives at several companies. You might recognize some of these brands, including VP of Growth and Marketing at Spotify, a fan favorite of mine. And then as Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of health grades. Uh, which I am familiar with as well, as a healthcare scheduling platform. Uh, So he's got an awesome background. He was recognized, you know, 40 under 40, Forbes, Harvard Business, Um, really interesting human being you are, Meyer. And I wanna start with this really interesting intersection in your background from like developer to marketing. It seems like 2005, 2006, something shifted maybe around that time where you have this dev background Then you kind of started getting into advertising and marketing and I just kind of want that to be the genesis for today. What was that transition? What happened at that intersection for you?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for all the kind words and I often feel I wish my wife was sitting here so (laughs) I could could gain some valuable points at home with my daughters and my wife, but hopefully someday they are sitting in the background (laughs) and uh, they would believe that I actually do something. Um, <laughs> but um, to your point you nailed it pretty much there, there were two pivotal points jeremy in my career consciously and to be honest accidentally and subconsciously i grew up in india and you know did my major in computer science and started my career as an engineer c++ java jdoe and you know these were the languages back then and if you didn't have these languages you weren't the cool kid on the block so i was that's how i started became a tech architect you know Uh, architected solutions, online e-learning platforms, IVR systems, and so on. But the first pivot for me really came in 06 when the company, I used to be at Sapient, which acquired an ad tech product. And one of my mentors asked me to be a product lead uh, and a product manager for that ad tech platform. And that is how I evolved from being a pure technologist and an engineer to building solutions and products for marketing and advertising. So that Genesis was all the way down and um, to the basics, literally writing code for ad servers. You know, we had a search bit management system, email relays, and since then have taken these baby incremental steps towards the center of marketing. And thankfully marketing in those 16 years or so has also now become way more intertwined with data, technology, and storytelling.
0: Mm. So where did you go to like, so you got on the path of marketing, you kind of got on that the ad tech side of things and you still brought your your technical kind of acumen to that ad tech side of things. And so you're, you're entering into the marketing world, you're bringing that dev background, and then you start to see this world of marketing. And what was the kind of beginning shifts into the strategy of marketing? Was it, were there just marketing mentors at the business there? Were there books? Were there you know, crumbs along the path that really, because because again, you're, you've then took that from marketing, you know, contributing in marketing to then leading marketing. So kind of more things happened along the way. Uh, but in those early days, again, like what were, the, what were some of the things you started to gravitate to in terms of like upskilling your own, you know, marketing skills? It's a fantastic question. And I've spoken it
1: like all of us in many conferences, many podcasts and We've spoken a lot about these inflection points. I've never, ever shared the mental, emotional turmoil I went through during those years because I had no F clue of what I was doing and what marketing was. I understood technology. I understood building products and platforms. But I'll be very honest. I was a hammer looking for a nail. Um, And that was my perspective pretty much up until 2012 or so where marketing, the definition of marketing for me was uh, just these products and platforms and, uh, and you know, the, the quality of ads that you could drive, you know, the instrumentation, the analytics, that was the end and be all. And um, in those from 2006 till 2012 or so, um, to your question on what I was going through and how I was even understanding marketing, I was reading Wikipedia, man, because there was no simpler place. There was no marketing for dummies. I would go back because I would be under so much pressure talking to these guys who build these ad servers that are serving hundreds of billions of impressions. And they're talking about pixels and munges and de-munging and, you know, and encryption. I had no clue. I didn't even know what a publisher was, what a target is, what a venue and a placement is, because I'm, a, I'm coming from a totally different world. So I would go to Wikipedia, I would go back to my hotel because I was traveling, and I would understand, "Oh, this is what they mean." And sometimes it was this language that was so specific to the company, it was very hard. So I went through that. The pivot for me, where I evolved from pure technology, even products for marketing and advertising to really understanding the serendipity and the irrationality of marketing was when I finally then left Sapient to join. Kimberly Clark, after 12 years. That was my first foray into AKA corporate America or on the brand side as a chief marketing technologist, responsible to help drive the digital evolution, responsible to play a small part in evolving from digital marketing to believing in marketing in a digital world. That's when I realized that at the end of the day, the Purpose of technology and data and science is ultimately to is to drive behavioral change, is to solve the barriers that prevent your growth as a business, is to inspire the human behavior. And that was the beginning when I truly started to challenge myself to understand the nuance of marketing, where I felt that I had to create my own understanding as an engineer, where marketing no longer was a choice between that irrationality, and there's very growth-driven, data-driven marketing that is accountable, addressable, attributable, and it works. Mm. And I'm sure we will get to how do you strike that balance the last 12, 13 years where we are living in this growth at all costs? How do you bring brands that have a soul and all of that?
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, I love that. You know, it seems like the other, the other part about your early days I want to I key in on too is there's also this kind of evolution from, you know, individual contributor to marketing leader, right? And so you're not only, you know, you're diving head, you know, headfirst into the marketing world and learning everything you can, that doesn't mean you're going to be a great marketing leader. You know, that's that's like, a, there's a whole different side of that that you also began to get into. It looks like towards the end of your time at Sapient, maybe into Kimberly Clark, you, you know, leadership roles there. What was that intersection like now? You're understanding marketing, you're seeing the value, you're certainly understanding the right and left brain aspects of things. Because to me, to be a great modern day CMO, you have to be really good at both. You have to understand creative, you certainly have to understand the technology and the data. And I think there's, there's a shift happening in the CMO world if you don't have those things. But just back to being a marketing leader, was that also kind of similar to what you said about marketing, just diving in and learning as much as you could? What are some of those kind of early stage experiences of making a shift from, okay, now I want to lead a team. Now I want to move up.
1: Yes. Great question again. And and I wish I could have said it was all about just jumping in and doing all things right. It was probably, if I did 10 things, I screwed up eight of them. And um, in hindsight, of course, those eight of them have made me the, the person I am or whatever leadership role I play today. But it was to be honest, it was, it was a lot of just going in and trying things out and seeing many of them not working and falling on my face. You don't realize that in that moment, in there, in that moment, you feel, no, no, this is the best way to do it. Only up until you get some more experience and you look back, you're like, yes, this is how I could have done it better. So I would say what, what influenced a lot of those lessons, Jeremy, was not just as you take on more roles, but it's also the diversity of the organization where you work. So leadership at an organization like Kimberly Clark could mean very different, slightly different uh, from leadership at Spotify, because the cultures are very different. The pace at which you move is very different. And when I got into an organization like Spotify, which is one of the iconic brands in the last, you know, decade and a half or two decades, where you're surrounded by just top talented people and as a as a young immigrant, I felt oh, I had to be the first one to cross every line. That was the definition of leadership for me. You know, mm. It wasn't my ability to take people along. So the first half of my time at Spotify was how do I be the guy who has all the answers in that room as opposed to be the guy who's going to ask the right question and inspire others to bring the answers. Now, I kid you not, when I was there going through this, it all made sense. But, in hindsight, um, you know that's that's how I learned that leadership is not about being the guy or the girl who has all the answers. It is being vulnerable. Mm. It is not just showing how to do it right. It is also showing how to do it wrong. because the challenge of leadership is we often say, we or oh, we need to have create a safe environment. You need to show uh, you need to create, an environment where people feel the freedom to fail. But how will they if the leaders aren't talking about their own failures, if the leaders aren't failing? Because if the leaders are always successful, it is almost impossible to create an environment where you're inspiring that uh, appetite to take risks, that appetite to fall down only to get back up. It's a lot more theoretical than reality until you Mm. kill yourself.
0: Well, so was that that modeled for you? I would imagine that somewhere along the way, maybe it was even before your you know career or profession, but this idea of of how you look at failure and how you're also very it seems like you're very accountable to your failure. and you're you're like, hey, you're the one crossing the line first. Like you said, you're going there. Where was that was that first model for you working at Sapien or somewhere else where you saw leadership being vulnerable, having courage to to make the first move, make mistakes, but continue moving? Or did you see it somewhere else in school or with your parents? Where did that come from? Because that's a key characteristic that you've cultivated along the way is how you look at failure. It seems like that's an interesting point.
1: Yes, um, there is something inherent for kids, at least my time, you know, who came from countries like India and many more, where you have way more number of people and applicants than the opportunities that are in you know within the ecosystem, where when you get an A grade. Um, your parents don't get uh, back then. The parents would not get excited. You got an A grade. They want to know who else got an A plus, mm.
0: right?
1: because it's very natural. Because until you are coming first at something, you don't really have a shot at getting anywhere because there's just not enough resources. So one, you know, I would say six out of ten kids during my times, that was our DNA. You know, that is what. We were asked when we went back home getting excited that I got a 90 out of 100. Yeah, but did somebody get 100 out of 100? You know, that is how we were trained. So I would say somewhere deep rooted, that is how I grew up. Having said that, I've just been fortunate to have worked with such incredible organizations and been mentored by incredible leaders who perhaps went to their own journey, but they figured it out. So I was nurtured that way at Sapient, you know, which had some really tremendous core values, which is what shaped me. But honestly, once I left that that gym, I called Sapien as my alma mater, or that's the gym. And when I started to really play in the championships in Kimberly Clark's and the spotties of the world, you know, that is when I was really trying out those skills, and I learned through a lot of those mistakes. And you get inspired by, you know, again, just working with tremendous entrepreneurs, working with tremendous marketing leaders and product leaders, and you realize this is how they've grown. You know, they are mm. they are talking about their failures with confidence. They are giving an opportunity for others to fail. So, what can I learn from that? And what can I learn from things that I did not do right or I could have done better?
0: Do you have a favorite failure from your Spotify days?
1: Yes, yes, I, um, I have. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's interesting that these are favorite failures, but these are things that if I were to do it all over again, uh, which I am, you know, you would do it, you would change it. But, you know, some of these are. Tactical growth ideas. Some of these are more leadership things that I would have done differently. You know, one is when you're driving change in an in an incumbent massive legacy organization, or you're trying to drive scaled growth in a fast-moving company. There are a lot of strategies, a lot of great things that work for you. There, you know, a lot of mindset, your skills, um, your ideas. But there's one thing that is most undervalued, but the most critical, which is your ability to build relationships with your peers within the organization, just as much or even more than you're trying to build as a marketer with the external customer. And there is nothing more relevant than doing that. And that doesn't mean being the good person or saying being the yes person in any dialogue, but it is investing in building that trust, investing in knowing each other as humans so that you can have the toughest conversation with a lot more transparency and honesty. And I learned the value of that trusted relationship way later in my journey there, mm. but I value that a lot more now because without that, you can you can win a few sprints, but you cannot win the marathon as a team.
0: Mm. I, I, that's that's makes so much sense, and it really you know it's a question I I, lo- I love to ask marketing leaders that you know that take the time to be on this show mm-hmm. is you know in in this marketing leader role, especially in fast growth, which you're very familiar with. It's really so much about collaboration, right? And you as the marketing leader, especially nowadays, you're sitting at you know, in the middle of this flywheel, these intersections of product and finance and sales and operations and certainly IT. And it's like you're you're really in the middle of all of that. And and one thing that you have to do really well is stay aligned and really support each other, is certainly the the leadership team, but you know, really it's like supporting so many personalities and parts of the business. And I'm curious of how are you doing this now? How are you staying aligned and supporting, you know, the rest of the leadership team and the folks on the team there at Gannett? Um, How are you doing this now? Because that's, to me, a big part. Of course, you have to be, you know, great at the ROI, but you really got to get good at that communication and support.
1: That is so right, Jeremy. And in fact, there is one more element to that relationship, uh, why it has become far more critical for marketing than any other function. And I'll come back to that answer on that, which I would love to talk about. But one other key aspect is there is no other function within that C-suite that has disrupted to this extent in the last 15 years like marketing has. Like, look, product and, and the product principles, the design system, the design patterns, best practice, they, they've been around, right? A lot of technology has evolved tremendously, but product and what product does hasn't quite dramatically changed or tech or finance or sales. Marketing is night and day and then night and day all over again in the last 20 years. What that does is based on the nature of the organization and the leadership team, the expectation and the scope and the definition of success for marketing is so varied, which means that as a marketer, you may define your scope and success as this. But somebody else may relegate you to just be the call center, to just be the campaign folks, especially if you're a product-led organization, if you're a tech-led organization where the first phase of growth came entirely on the inertia of a fantastic product. Then the role that marketing plays are these logo people, campaign, few tent poles. And I think that is where the chief marketing officer or head of marketing has to ensure that you align firstly internally on the definition of the scope and success of marketing. What are the OKRs? How do they tie in? And what does success and failure look like? And and it starts there and then you build a relationship. But coming back to your question on Gannett, look, it's a a fascinating journey for us. And it's a very unusual challenge and a role that I took on and feel very grateful and fortunate to have been given the opportunity. It's an evolution from a hundred year old legacy advertising led media business that have been typically obsessed with eyeballs and traffic to now fundamentally pivoting to becoming, you know, a subscription led content business that is um, that needs to be obsessed with user value and no longer eyeballs. And that's an 180 degree turn all the way from what data you store and what KPIs and, and what North star metrics are relevant to the mindset and the culture and so on. So the, the strategy there that, that we've applied in my role, where I, I'm responsible for marketing and growth, but also the transformation is exactly that. How do we go back to the drawing board, which we did last year and redefine who we are, why we exist and what success looks like. And we've translated that into very tangible black and white set of North stars. One of the struggles that big organizations have or few of the struggles and which we did too is we, is the inability to prioritize, is the inability to, to build the velocity of decision-making. It is the inability to build a strong appetite to take risk and move fast, to have the belief system that the only moat you have as an organization today is your ability to move faster than the competition. It's all about experimentation and not perfection. So we spent the first three months in my job was all about aligning with the leadership and then all the way down, where now I can confidently say that at the very least, we have 15,000 people in the organization looking in one direction, Mm. not following the same path to get there because that is not the intent. And the success for us is going to be not building an orchestra where everyone plays a role. In fact, building this culture of a flash mob where you know where you all need to be at the same time Where you have your own rhythm, but we know the destination and you will have your own pace. And there is that, you build that culture and trust that people will do what they have to do. So there is that sense of autonomy, there's that sense of freedom, but within that particular framework. So it's been that. And then, lastly, from a people and personnel standpoint, because we're driving so much change respectfully and trying to disrupt ourselves on top of a 100 year old legacy. Sometimes it's, it's very, in fact, most times it's very, very hard. And the hardest thing to change is not that strategy. It is the culture and the mindset and the belief systems. So we are doing that with building that trust, or at least I am trying to do that. We're building that trust and relationship. It is trying to find out how do you make your teams, your peers, people around you feel safe How do you make them feel that it's not your idea? It's our idea. In fact, they are in the bus and not outside the bus receiving. And it is also, how do you show respect for what has been done? So yes, there is no question a lot has to change, but it was all that effort and commitment that got us to this point.
0: How do you go about now kind of building a high performance marketing team, right? You've had all this really cool experience. You've worked with some amazing people. You've kind of learned along the way, like, What, are the, who's the profile, the character that you want to have on your team. What were some of the priorities you established around that when you joined Gannett? And how do you kind of view building a really high-performance marketing team?
1: It is building that high-performance marketing team. It is bringing um, a diverse set of people who come into your ecosystem, which we did last year, a lot of it. People who are 10 times stronger and smarter than you are in what they do. And when I say diversity, I just don't mean the ethnic diversity, you know, or the gender diversity. It is a diversity of experiences, the diversity of verticals. So we've hired people last year from the likes of Spotify to Disney to Peacock to startups like Aura, purely tech, nothing to do with content, nothing to do with journalism because these are the people who have been involved in disrupting other categories. They are the ones who are bringing no barriers. They are the ones who are coming and challenging the status quo on day one. And we are on our way. We've seen some tremendous success. There's no question. We have tremendous headwinds still in front of us, but I feel way more confidence with the kind of talent that we continue to bring on. And we are on that inertia. So that continues. And the investments that we are making towards this transformation. So we've invested um, we are investing in data like we've not done before. We've hired a chief data officer from HBO, for example. We are investing in a product and engineering. We are investing in diversifying our content portfolio. So our belief now is that we, as a content organization, our core and DNA will always be in that unbiased, honest, authentic journalism, but no longer limited to it. So journalism for us is books to Amazon. Now we are finding the concentric circle. So we've launched ourselves into sports, into gaming. We've launched ourselves, you know, into other areas of uh, new content verticals. And we continue to do that, you know, going into next year.
0: Mm. How would you describe your relationship with like predictable growth, you know, in terms of you have so much at your disposal? you know, with MarTech and really talented people and, and strategies that work locally and globally and all this exposure. What is your relationship with predicting growth like now?
1: That's a great question. Um, in my head, I'm thinking, I wish I could predict growth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, we will all be multi-billionaires so we can put our <laughs> money where the growth comes from but I, I feel I don't know if the growth is predictable, but sometimes the frameworks and the blueprints a little bit are, and the mindset is so I'll give you a few examples on things that we're doing to get better at that. Uh, we spoke about talent, we spoke about the culture and the mindset, but for example, you know we are we are building a much stronger capability in data science, where you know we're investing in data engineering and data science because a lot of times there is a euphoria around AI and ML. But look, if you have garbage data, if the quality of data isn't there, then it doesn't matter the quality of, you know, pattern code you have, you're going to have wrong predictions or inaccurate predictions. So we are investing just as much in data engineering and cleaning that up and look for an organization like us, which is a portfolio of 260 brands within local markets. That's a big, that's a massive challenge because this company has grown with a series of acquisitions and mergers over the last four or five decades, we are not on a monolithic system. We've come a long, long way. We now have a universal content management system. We now have you know, universal instrumentation, and we are now getting a universal stack when it comes to our data ecosystem. So one is, that's the, the mechanical part, is building the muscle to even understand how do we apply all these different levels and variables to predict the future. And then the second very important part is is the culture to be able to move fast, to make decisions. So that's where we have totally changed our operating principle and model. Something that I learned at Spotify is this concept of chapters and squads. So we brought that model on board, where we have created a number of, we call them pods here. So we have built a number of pods that ladder up to our five north stars. And each pod has a... Is basically a formation of a cross-functional unit, so it could have a data scientist and analyst, you know a product lead, engineers, content folks, marketeers as needed, and then it has a pod leader. But that pod then has the autonomy to make decisions on a daily basis, because that cross-functional unit is now aligned on that shared outcome and a shared definition of success in the form of that OKR. So we have built that model to kill and destroy the traditional model of isolated functions that come together every now and then, to create this more nucleus, to solve a tangible business problem and a KPI, but also to provide them resources and the autonomy to run at 100 miles an hour.
0: Mm. Do those pods have their own KPIs or are they sharing KPIs and OKRs?
1: The, the pods have their own KPIs, but they are intertwined. They, they get connected. So okay. in Q1 next year, you know we are rolling out an OKR management tool that basically, which is very, very uh, common now with a lot of growth companies where all these OKRs connect together, you show interdependency. But interestingly, they ladder up to the five companies' North Star goals. So you start to show the hierarchy of you as an individual trying to ladder up and see how are you contributing to that macro North Star KPI for the organization.
0: We had Jeremy Epstein, uh, who's the CMO at, at GTM Hub on the show. One of my fa- favorite humans, man. He's incredible. But the things they're doing there uh, and the stuff they're doing for, their, for their, comp- their brands and customers is exceptional. So very bullish on on that kind of technology that's, that's supporting rapid growth. So yeah. you talk a lot about you know safety you know, on the team and creating a safe environment for the team. It's something that it appears that you're doing well and you, you've learned along the way. You know, as a marketing leader, I think it's so important to get this right. You know, I know that I've connected with with many marketing leaders on and off this this show that that really get that right, and others that are just really aiming but, but struggling there. How do you kind of remove this fear of failure? How do you actually do this for your team and create this? You know, cultivate this safe place where you know everyone feels free to really bring their whole self to to the role.
1: You know, it's it's uh, th- there's so many there's so many things. But I think the one that, that I feel is most important, like I shared earlier, is lead with failure. If you're a leader that just does not demonstrate failure and vulnerability on your own, it is, it, it's just an oxymoron. Like, how can you inspire failure if you are always successful, if you have all the answers, if you are in that room being perfect? So a lot of times it is going into those conversations and saying, look, hate is a challenge, but I don't know how to solve it. And we need help because that, that removes the guards, right? And, um, and it allows everybody to participate. It allows everybody to feel that they're part of the solution and not part of the problem. You know, there's another very tactical part, Jeremy, which is very, very specific to marketing and which makes people very unsafe being a marketer today. And that is the conundrum within marketing as well. So if you go to many growth companies and if you happen to be a brand marketeer, I can assure you 9 out of 10 times you are afraid and scared. Are you going to be back next day? Because there's a lot of question on the value of AKA brand marketing or the the incrementality of the serendipitous and irrational marketing that that builds that brand love. Um, Because we are operating in this Go at all costs, at least up until COVID hit us. I think COVID took all of us back to the drawing board, back to the basics. But up until then, it was a challenge being a brand marketer. It was a challenge being anything but a growth marketer where you could prove your value every single day You know, when you're locking off at 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. because you could say, hey, I spent 100 bucks. I got five customers. Here is the LTV. Here is the ROI. If you couldn't do that, you felt at risk. You felt unsafe. So I feel that while there are those macro changes and shifts in an organization to be safe, within marketing, marketers and head of marketing have to, build that, have to build that safety net because they have to be the strong advocates to show that sustainable growth comes when the three flywheels are constantly running, which is growing the brand, growing the user base, growing the user value. If you don't grow the brand, if you don't invest in that serendipity, then you're only building a very utilitarian functional relationship with your customer. Who's going to leave the moment you get a competitor who gives you more value for the same price or the same value for a lower price, Mm. right? Or you make a mistake, which is inevitable in today's world. So we have to believe in, uh, in that incrementality when you build that strong brand that is culture, that is culturally connected But the challenge that we have on our side that that we have to own is how do you prove that incrementality with data, Mm. not just with emotion? How do you get creative with data and prove that the growth of your top of funnel investment, the growth in that brand affinity actually has impact on your efficiency of your growth marketing efforts in terms of efficiency in your cap in terms of incrementality in your retention rate or a higher lifetime value. Until we bring that data, it is going to be very hard for us as marketers to prove why we continuously need to invest in building those brands.
0: Mm. You sat on the board of Gannett for for nearly two years, I believe. And I'm curious about how that experience really shaped your decision to join them was, were you kind of thinking, wow, Gannett's an interesting business and I think I, I could see value. I mean, was that your plan initially was to end up there as leading the strategy and, and leading marketing? Um, but I'm curious about your experience just being on the board, what you saw and how that kind of shaped your decision to join them.
1: Yes. Uh, again, being fully transparent and this, this question at this depth has never been discussed openly. So I'll be very transparent because it, it's fun. Um, See, when you're on the board, when I was on the board, you know, never for once I ever thought about taking on an operating role in the company because I'd worked in companies that were night and day different, you know, Freshly, Spotify, even Healthgrades, Kimberly Clark. These are companies that were running at a thousand miles an hour, you know, trying to change, whereas Gannett, when I was on the board, was still, uh, you know, was going through a massive change in itself, but still trying to figure out the future and the evolution, Uh, a massive merger had just happened. And and we were in the midst of this COVID crisis where, you know, it was falling, falling over all around, around the world. So it was a very, very different time. What drove me to that, um, to that opportunity was being on the board made me realize that the management team and the legacy of the company believed in why it existed the purpose and the mission, right? And, and having been through so many, having been through just 20 years in my career, I realized that a lot of times, um, especially when the shit hits the fan, the first thing that gets out of the window for many organizations is the purpose and the mission, you know, because it's very hard to stand behind it. But in Gannett, I saw an organization where the leadership, the board, um, and the history had stood behind it. What it had not done, granted was had not evolved at the pace at which the world changed and the world evolved. And that is where I saw that as a massive opportunity. And like I said, I was very grateful to have been given an opportunity last year to come in and figure out where should we go? What should be our North Star? And how do we evolve ourselves and make some big decision that had not been made in 40 years? So as an example, when we, when we said we are now going to be a subscription like business, which means that beyond the business model, it means... You're going to raise the value you are creating for the consumer, for that individual who's, who's living in that small zip code, so much that you're going to inspire them to pay, where you are no longer dependent on the business paying you for all you, you do, but instead the end consumer. But fundamentally, that was, that was a mindset shift. And um, that to me was very exciting as a challenge. And I felt that it's a lot easier to drive growth when you're on a blank canvas, which is a startup and a very, very different beast of a challenge when you're literally, literally um, flying the plane and changing because you are, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar (laughs) revenue, a public company that needs to have quarterly goals, but you have to take risks. You have to make change. And that's a a very different lesson learned for me and a journey, which I'm enjoying and cherishing and, and just learning from so many fantastic people that I work with every day.
0: This is something I really want to, want to hear from you. And maybe if you could share an example, you know, and I think this is big as something that as a leader, as a, as a leader in our leadership team and in our organization, we think about this a lot. And I've heard you talk about this, uh, how the biggest barrier for companies to move forward is their past success. And the levers that, you know, got them this far won't necessarily be the same levers and probably, you know, probably won't, really won't be the same thing that helps get them forward. And I'd love to just hear maybe some examples of it, maybe if it's at Gannett or others, but just how you're able to bring because one thing is to know that, but then there's also you know to actually bring a strategy into an organization that that needs change desperately. Um, how do you do that? And maybe there's a story or something you can you can share around that.
1: Yes, you know uh, the most recent one is of course at, at Gannett, and I'll, I'll talk maybe at two levels. The look the the company grew into a into a legacy iconic brand and a multi billion dollar business on the backing of an advertising business that is what news and journalism was you know it is advertising was the thing advertising is what made google what google is today but what we have to realize just because that was our core and that was the dna that is how the world operated that may not necessarily mean this is how it's operating now i can't even say it's going to operate in the future because that world has already changed you know we are we are catching up very quickly so that's a very very simple example simply because the consumer habits have changed and fundamentally evolved. The macro ecosystem has fundamentally shifted already. In fact, shifted maybe seven, eight years back. So that's a great example of just because something worked, we have to be respectful for that. We are now very much aligned that the world starting now and onwards is very, very different. Same way, you know, very specific to the world of marketing. You know, we all grew up looking at marketing and I, i talked about marketing in in four eras you know era one being the 1970s to 2000s which i call the you know the black um days of marketing on many ways black more in the sense of uh, it was unaddressable you know it was a dark hole you know uh, less attributable but it was the age of the mad men where mm-hmm. you know where only marketing was whoever was the, had the most bitty ad or could be on the super bowl spot and as consumers we were gullible we had no option Like we saw that ad enjoyed it, went to the shelf, bought it. That is what marketing was, and it worked. But consumers have far more choice now. There's far more addressability. There's far more reach and access where marketing has to be a lot more accountable, a lot more addressable. So just because it worked back then and purely from a creative standpoint, perfection worked. You spend so much time in research. You spend so much time in studying. Whereas today, it's all about experimentation. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars you spend in call and quant research you still would not know how your consumers are going to respond to that idea. The only way you do is by testing it, getting it out there faster with more ideas, more variations, test and learn and pivot and then scale. Mm. So habits are so different. And the organization that are successful are the ones who are constantly looking at that mindset to what worked for me a year and a half back may not necessarily work for me anymore and as a matter of fact your starting point has to be it will not work and you should be surprised if it does still work
0: hmm. how how has subscription based news really changed journalism or, or has it
1: i think it has it has for a good reason because it has it has shifted the focus from producing news as content to drive eyeballs like in many countries not just here in the us but in many countries there's a lot of thing that is written just to bring traffic you know it's the so called trp and in our case it's you know it's traffic and eyeballs and impressions to now you know when that business model fundamentally shifts where you are now challenging yourself every single day to to write what is truly you to write absolutely being honest and being authentic and to understand what is relevant to the community, what is going to be relevant to um, you know to the broader cause because until you are honest and authentic and relevant, people aren't going to pay for it. So I think it has raised the bar. At the flip side, the consumers have understood and realized too that high quality premium journalism, which is imperative for in today's world, cannot be free mm. because we've seen what happens when you get free news on WhatsApp, on, on Facebook. It creates chaos. People lose their lives for information that is um, inauthentic, that is fake. It it brings economies down. It kills people. And I think we've come to the point where people have realized and they're appreciating it. Hence, you're seeing tremendous growth in the total addressable market around the globe for people who are ready to pay for news.
0: What experiences did you learn from the, this process of expanding into new media, right? New media channels, including podcasts, digital newsletters, for example. Like, what are some of the things you learned from kind of getting into that? Can you talk about the role of data in those decisions and additions?
1: You know, it's, it's the fundamental mindset of being customer obsessed. It is the learning and a belief that don't think that these touch points and formats um, and, and media types are finite, you know, it's, which means that, okay, it's, everything is about podcasts and audio right now, but that's just now it could be, it's already VR and AR, you know, as 5g becomes more ubiquitous and the cost to enter becomes we you know, we are already talking about the metaverse. So imagine the role of news in the metaverse. So this is an infinite cycle, but the only way you win as an organization is when you have that that ability to constantly disrupt and change yourself and keep evolving, move fast and being obsessed with the customer and their needs and build that ability to predict their evolving needs, even before they know they got that need. Mm. Right. And that's the, that's the rhythm that is the ability to your point on predicting growth. I think it is all predicting growth is a function of our ability to predict the behavior. And, and that's, it's a very hard muscle to build. That is what we are trying to build at Gannett is how do we get ahead of the curve while we are catching up at the same time. Mm -hmm. But that's my biggest lesson on that, that, that consumer behavior is no longer static. That's why as a startup, for example, you may have proven product market fit, but don't stay there because the product market fit keeps evolving because the behaviors and the external landscape and ecosystem is rapidly changing you know, in weeks and months, no longer years. Mm.
0: Some of your content is free and then and then some is behind a paywall. How do you drive value from the decisions to make some content free?
1: Yes. Yes. It's, it's a great question. Some of it, some of the content that is free is absolutely tied to our purpose and mission because there is some things that we believe, you know, in a world like this it's our responsibility to make it accessible so any of our content around covid for example any global crisis anything that happens will always be free we never want to monetize that at the same time uh, you know we we are we are using data to understand what are the type of topics our readers are ready to pay for on one hand right so we have to understand where the market is going you know also we have a massively diverse set of viewership we get close to 200 million readers, unique people who come to our backyard every month to consume our content. And that's um, a diverse set of readers, you know, from 18 to 24, 24 to 44 and 44 plus. Now, of course, we want to continue to index younger and younger. We believe that's that's the growth segment we want to penetrate. So we are evolving and making a lot of investment in evolving our experiences, our content, the verticals. And so we're using a lot of those signals to identify what are the types of content, what formats, what type of experiences should we mark premium? At the same time, what does a premium experience look and feel like? And, you know, we know that as a user, you are living in this world of, uh, you know, in a world where there's no dearth of great content. Eventually people are going to make hard choices very quickly. So we don't compare ourselves with other Journalism brands. We compare ourselves with the Netflixes, the Apples, the Spotify's of the world, because at the end, it's all content. Their world perhaps begins and indexes more on fiction. I w- if you ask me in one phrase, my vision for the company, my personal, I would say I would love to build a Netflix for nonfiction content, You know, which is the premier source and destination. When you have a question, when you're anxious, a place, a destination that you can trust, that's what we want to be.
0: Mm. What's the selection process for deciding if a piece or a series or a podcast is going to be free or behind a paywall? That is
1: something that happens within our editorial and our content organization, which is one of the largest parts of the company. And there is a team that is responsible for content insights on a daily basis, which is called a content strategy team that is intertwined with that part. And there's a lot of data and models we have that the editorial teams look at to identify. What is the type of content that, that should be premium? In fact, not just that, what is the right percentage of content which should be premium versus free? Um, and look, a lot of this, Jeremy, is, is an evolution for us and we're moving very fast. So a lot of these are new data points and signals. Like USA Today, as our most iconic brand, only, went, only launched subscription four months back after 40 years of being totally free. So we are a startup from that standpoint, and we are getting new data every day. And our content organization, our product teams, our marketing teams, that pod is making constant decisions on what is the right percentage of content which should be premium versus free? What is the right experience on USA Today that should truly feel premium? Um, What is the mindset of a USA Today user who's a paid subscriber? Because we only have four months of data. We have 40 years of data where people came to consume it for free. The great news is we are seeing tremendous growth even in these few months where I would have thought trying to change a 40-year-old habit suddenly uh, will be a monumental challenge, which it is, but we are seeing some exciting signals and we are seeing tremendous growth where, which gives mm-hmm. us a lot of confidence that people love our content and we have to keep improving, keep applying data to optimize it and also launch newer verticals based on that insight from these growth segments uh, that we are talking to.
0: This is something that, you know, we, you know, as a media company ourselves, we think about, you know, the we have this really great privilege of, you know, bringing in amazing humans like you that are really kind of across the Fortune 100, 500, global 2000, and we just, we have this incredible access. And so something we talk about as a leadership team as well is, you know, do we start to create content that's behind a paywall? Because we have such interesting access, we're telling really great stories, We also, of course, always wanna have a part of our stuff that's always available. And I think that's a part of kind of the value we bring, but there is this interesting evolution and we're seeing a lot of other networks and media companies really shift into this kind of gated uh, side of things. And so we're early in that, but I, I love how you think about it and think of, I mean, the one thing that I'm gonna chew on is just what does a premium experience look like? You know, that's a great question to think about. If we're gonna create this, what does that even look like? What does that feel like? And so I think that's a good thing to noodle on. So thank you for that.
1: And that shift, Jeremy, is a very tough self battle for the company because that shift from an advertising like business to a subscription like business, inevitably, you'll have to go this way before you go back up. Mm-hmm. And the hardest challenge for any organization is saying no to incoming revenue, to invest in future revenue, which is kind of a little bit of what we were talking about earlier is the hardest habits to change are the ones that have driven your past success. Those are the hardest things because you saw them work. So while there are a lot of tactical things and strategies, the biggest one is getting aligned on that choice to go down to eventually come back up.
0: Mm, I love it. This is so good, man. Okay. Let's, let's jump into the, uh, the lightning round, uh, my year. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for being here, man. This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm afraid of the lightning rounds always. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Um, marketing Trends podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com forward slash marketing. First question What three people, living or dead, would you like to have dinner with?
1: Well, first, is my mom, um, who's not in the world anymore, but um, she's everything, and without her, I would be nothing. Um, Elon Musk, for sure. I can't imagine any entrepreneur who's like him for what what he's doing and some some crazy, crazy, crazy things. Um, and third would be Malala, probably, for what she she's doing and my, my daughter's. Uh, are reading a book. So that's why she's top of my mind right now. And she recently got married and, and coming from that part of the world to have done and stood up for what she's done is, is, is just not great. But that's kind of courage that I can imagine a, a human can have. So it's, it's just pretty mm. inspirational and phenomenal.
0: I love that. Okay. Last question. We're coming up on time. What's your, your best advice for an incoming CMO? I'll give
1: two. Um, One is just know your numbers and know your data just as much as you know your brand because the only language that any organization understands today is data. And we cannot have purpose without profitability. We cannot build brand without business. You cannot have storytelling without science. And that's the part of marketing that is lacking. That is what builds questions and and lack of trust. And we need to bring that to the table and the other one will be as a marketer, just invest as much or more in that internal partnership and relationship, just as much as we all think about the external partnership and relationship with the customer is that internal customer uh, that we have to build that strong pipe with. Because if marketing ever had a marketing challenge, that is now.
0: That's so good. Thank you so much. Such an honor to have you on, mayer Gupta. Such an honor. Thank you so much.
1: Great. Thanks, Jeremy. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me over.
0: You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.